So today we're going to start a new series on uh, the beatific vision. And as I mentioned before, there are handouts. Uh, I expect everyone to have one. I'd like you also to have a Bible. Um, Most of the verses are printed out, but we're going to look together at Psalm 17, which is not uh, printed out. So I'd like to start by having uh, volunteers read the three verses at the top. Someone want to read Matthew 5a? Mark, okay. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Thank you, you, Rachel. And uh, Revelation 22, 3 through 5. Thank you, Mary. Go ahead and read those. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5 for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know, just as I also am known. First Corinthians 13. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. <laughs> this is Three of many uh, passages in the Bible that refer to the beatific vision, to seeing God. So what I want to do uh, initially is just to talk about, in the introduction, what is the beatific vision? And, and uh, I'd like to get some feedback from you, like what you know about it and uh, what you've heard about it. But uh, let me just briefly define the beatific vision as referring to the promise that uh, believers will see God face to face. Uh, particularly at the resurrection. Um, there are in this subject uh, so many points that have been debated over so many years that I should probably add, including uh, seeing God face to face after believers die, but especially at the resurrection. Now that raises questions because uh, God doesn't have a body. Uh, we can't see God with our physical eyes. So what does it mean to see God face to face? And typically, that's explained in terms of uh, knowledge. So uh, knowledge, however, not in the abstract, but knowledge with intimacy. So you can see that in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. Those are amazing statements referring to the knowledge of God that's promised to us. And closely connected that with that is the idea that seeing God will also yield uh, delight in God. So Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, says, of sight comes love. And that's obviously the context in 1 Corinthians about, uh, uh, about love. So there's a basic definition. There's a huge amount you can say in qualifying that, but uh, we'll see that as we go along. But as I said, I would be interested in, in hearing from you whether you're familiar with the teaching of the beatific vision, uh, what that name communicates to you, what associations uh, you have when you hear it, and uh, maybe things that you would like to know about it, uh, see if we can incorporate some of that in our study. So what do you think about the beatific vision? What do you know? What have you heard? What does it mean to you? Say not much. Okay. Could you define the or is that coming? That's coming. Okay. Uh, the short definition is in uh, Matthew 5, 8. It is the blessedness of seeing God. Beatific means blessed. Or Asher. Just to work in a name here. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so beatific refers to the fact that seeing God is a blessed thing. Other thoughts? Have you studied this before? What associations do you have with it? Yes, Dave? So it, uh, it, it seems that when we try to describe these actions, it's uh, the idea of seeing something is a mediated experience. Uh, mediated in the sense that you need light and retina and whatever else and such. But when we think about seeing God, uh, it needs to have some understanding of being unmediated by physical sensations, although with the resurrected body, you've got some complexity as to how to describe that vision without it being ocular in nature. Right. And that that's kind of a, um, a difficult thing to just define off the top of your head when you start thinking about it. It requires some thought to the immediacy of the whole right. experience. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And it's, uh, mm -hmm. there's an intentional contrast in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 between seeing by means and seeing God immediately and the glory and the intimacy of that. So what exactly does that mean? People have argued that using sight as a metaphor helps us to understand the immediacy of it, as opposed to other ways in which we might think of knowing God. Yeah, good. So if your reaction is that you haven't studied it much before, I'll admit that I hadn't either. So I spent some time reading, and uh, that's the fruit of my reading uh, is uh, this lesson. But as I read it, I, there are lots of things that I read about and I don't try to bother you with in classes, but I, I realized how uh, valuable this teaching is for not the end of the Christian life, which is the beatific vision, but shaping the way we live the Christian life as we prepare for it. And so that's, that's especially the point I want to get across. The beatific vision isn't just about eschatology, the last things. It's about how we live our lives in preparation for the great promise of seeing God. So I want to communicate that in uh, different ways as we go along, but uh, today I'd, I'd like to, uh, well, let me make one other point. Uh, I, was, I thought someone might say that it sounds like a Roman Catholic doctrine, okay? Um, and that was my impression, which is uh, ironic because it's, it's the teaching of the entire Christian church since uh, basically the beginning, you can find quotes from um, early writers in the Christian church talking about seeing God in this way. And the Reformed and the Puritans wrote a lot about it. They tended not to write books about it, but it tended to come up in, like I said, it's connected with lots of other things. So I'm, to try to get away from this sense that it's only what those guys, you know, with the smells and bells think and, and talk about. Uh, I, I am going to include a lot of quotes from Puritans. I already had Richard Sipps. Um, just to emphasize the connection that our own uh, Reformed heritage, our confessions and catechisms, which is what we'll look at next week, have with this. Okay, but let's, let's turn to introduce the subject properly. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 17. Turns out our hymnal um, has a lot to say about the beatific vision, and it's easy. In fact, the problem is there are too many passages in the Psalms about the beatific vision, uh, really, to do justice to all of them. But let's turn to Psalm 17, and I'm, um, I'm assuming some familiarity with the Psalm because we, we sing the Psalms, but I'm going to pick up the reading at verse uh, 
13. So would someone read Psalm 17, verses 13 through 15? Dan's got it. Thanks. Rise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So this is a psalm of David. David cries out to God, asks God to, <coughs> to test him, to know him, and says, you have tested me and you have visited me in the night. And then he, he turns to the threat from his enemies. And I might say that's sadly familiar in the Psalms. That's often what David goes through. But uh, there's a striking conclusion to the Psalm because he contrasts himself with the wicked in very uh, specific ways. That as for me at the beginning of verse 15 tells us that we're supposed to to pay attention to what he had just said and see that in contrast uh, to who he is. So what has he said about the wicked in uh, verses 13 and 14? What are some of the things you see and keep in mind a contrast with David. I'll start us out. They are wicked, right? Whereas in verse 15, he refers to himself as seeing God face to face in righteousness. So what other things do you see there? Being in opposition to God. Okay, good. This life is, where they, this is what they have. It's all here. Right. And there's that important biblical word portion. So we've seen uh, in connection, of course, with the history of the Israel, the division of the, of the tribes and the portion of the Levites. Okay, what else? There's one word that appears both in verse 14 and verse 15 that's really key to understanding what's going on. Satisfied. It's the word Satisfied. It's the same word in the original both times. So he says they are satisfied with certain things. So what, what are they satisfied with, the wicked? With their children? Abundance. With their abundance. The translations vary a little bit here, and so it's, it's the Hebrew is actually kind of hard to you know, explain uh, simply, but... The idea, at least, is that their satisfaction comes with uh, the things they have, their treasure, and especially with, and also with their children. So are those bad things? They're not bad things, right? They're, they are God's good gift. But the problem, as he sees it, is not those things, but the fact that they're satisfied with them. So what is it that David says he is satisfied with or will be satisfied with? Seeing God. Seeing God. The beatific vision. So it's an amazing contrast because it's this life, their portion in this life, the good things, but they're things that satisfy them versus David's looking to the ultimate satisfaction and that ultimate satisfaction is in seeing God and God himself. Now, let me just make a comment about interpreting this. Uh, when it says he will awake, uh, it could be that this is his comfort after sleepless nights. 
David did not have an easy time being chased all uh, that way, and uh, no doubt there's truth in that. But I'd like to point out at least a couple of indicators from the text and the context, well, from I should say from the larger context, that this is pointing to the resurrection. So one is uh, that this reference to awaking is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to point to the resurrection. You might think of uh, the book of Daniel, for example. Uh, but maybe more helpfully in the immediate context is if you just turn back to the end of Psalm 16, actually in my printing of the Bible, it's uh, still on the same page, but at the end of Psalm 16, uh, verse 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in your presence is fullness of joy. The word fullness is basically the same word as satisfaction and the presence is the face of God. I'm not criticizing the translation. I'm just saying that in terms of the world of uh, ideas that's being brought here, what's said here is exactly the joy of seeing God's face. What does the end of Psalm 16 refer to? You've read your New Testament. It refers to the resurrection of Christ and therefore our own resurrection with him. So I think that by itself uh, is a helpful connection to make us see that David is not only saying that this will soon be over and I will be satisfied seeing God's face, but that he's pointing to the ultimate satisfaction, which is at the resurrection. And by the way, there's an important connection there because Christ has the beatific vision in his human nature and we are united to him we ourselves have the beatific vision. That's implied at Psalm 16 and the usage in the New Testament. So keep that in mind. It's a, that's a beautiful way to understand how it is that we're able to have such an inheritance. It is because we're united to Christ who, uh, who attained this for us. Okay, so David is saying, in effect, there are good things that you can be satisfied. There are good things in this life, but being satisfied with them is far short of what you should be satisfied with. And you should be satisfied with the seeing of God. Now, many of the uh, times when Puritan writers deal with the subject, they'll turn to evangelism, to addressing unbelievers in this and calling on them to not find their satisfaction the way the wicked do, but uh, in uh, God. And uh, I'm going to read uh, one passage like that, but um, just point out that's what Jesus does, right, with the woman in the well in John 4. Uh, you have this water that perishes. Uh, I have water that satisfies, the water that will live, go to everlasting life. So I'd like for us to think about that when we uh, speak to unbelievers, that uh, this is something that we can appeal to. So this is a writer, uh, probably maybe not, not as uh, well known as uh, some of the others, but as uh, William Strong, he's, he refers to Jeremiah 2 and the fact that God's people had forsaken him and they had forsaken the fountain of living waters and made for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. And he's applying that and says, it is a folly because there is no need of it. For there is a sufficiency in God. You may, be in ha you may be happy in him, though you have nothing else. For he is all sufficient to himself, and his happiness lies in himself. He is God blessed forevermore. And shall he not be sufficient unto thee? I'd like to 
want you to think about that and the way David in Psalm 17 is making this contrast. It calls unbelievers to find their satisfaction in God and not things that can fail. But of course, it also causes us to ask the same question of ourselves. Is that our desire to see God? Is that our ultimate satisfaction? Do we realize that everything else is only a broken system, but that God is blessed forevermore and he is sufficient? Let me pause and uh, see uh, what you think about that as a part of evangelism or what you think about that as uh, maybe searching your, our own thoughts as we think about Psalm 17. Dave. I find it a great comfort that in 1000 BC, people sat around asking themselves, is this all there is to life? Yeah. And coming to the conclusion consistent with even the creation mandate that no, there's, there's much more to be satisfied with. Pile up all kinds of good things, but it's a capacity problem. Good. I've, I've had many conversations like this where there's, in essence, they're saying there has to be something more. Yeah. And there's always examples of where something goes wrong with what you have or with a family member whether it be sickness or health or something I mean we're, we all have live with those examples right so it's it's not hard to have that conversation in a broken world good well I feel like addiction is another example of the way people are searching for something to fill mm-hmm. fill the gap that we we feel in our souls that need to be satisfied and because everything falls short it only leads to more of the thing in hopes that it will fill that's good thank you okay so I'd like to turn from that I have uh, listed here on the outline and by I don't know if there are enough copies around but there there's some sheets floating around uh, five uh, reasons for studying the beatific vision See, I figured I needed to convince you to come back. (laughs) This is really weird. Uh, So these are reasons that I, myself, in studying it, found uh, compelling. It's five good reasons because it's followed by one bad reason. Uh, So that's what's coming. So the first good reason that I listed here is that it is a uh, blessed promise. And uh, Vicky asked about this before. So the, the name beatific is... The word beatific we don't use uh, that often, but it is referring to the fact that it is a vision that makes us blessed. It's kind of a strange term, but at least we can say, well, Jesus basically said that in that uh, beatitude that we talked about, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So why is it a blessed promise? It is because uh, God himself is blessed. God is all-sufficient in himself. He needs uh, nothing. He didn't need to create the world to be happy. Uh, He has all, as the confession says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. It is alone and in in and unto himself all-sufficient. We are not. The beatific vision is saying that God promises to make us participants in his own blessedness, 
So this is what Thomas Watson uh, says. He, he wrote about the Beatitudes. So this is a place, one place you can find uh, comments from Puritans is when they write about the Beatitudes. He says, the saints shall behold God's glory. The pure in heart shall have the same blessedness that God himself has. For what is the blessedness of God but the contemplating his own infinite beauty? That's a remarkable promise. God, who is sufficient in himself, enables us to participate in his blessedness by enabling us to see him and to contemplate his own infinite beauty. So it's a blessed promise in that sense. It is a promise of blessedness that is really beyond our comprehension. Is that also kind of linked to uh, I guess First Corinthians 2, 9, where he where he had been talking about the things that God had laid up for us for our glory. And he, he just goes on to say, I have not seen nor ear heard or have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can imagine quite a bit, but to think I can't even imagine it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, and I, thank you for saying that. I was going to add the comment that even though this is a blessed promise and a blessed teaching, uh, my teaching on it is not going to be uh, anywhere close to the level that it should be. It is a, a something that is ineffable beyond our comprehension. And uh, in the end, we can just marvel at God's goodness yeah. in uh, putting this in front of us. It makes the promise all the more richer. That's right. Exactly. Good. Other thoughts? Okay, the second uh, reason, I mean... There are lots you could get, but the second one I gave is that it is a, a compelling metaphor. So we talked about sight. Uh, in a sense, sight is, you might say, just a metaphor, but it is, it is a, a compelling metaphor. And so uh, hang on a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of explanation of uh, the history of the understanding of this in the, in the church, because I think it will help us to see um, why this is a compelling metaphor. So as I mentioned before, it's a uniform belief in the history of the church back to the very beginning that the end or goal of the Christian life is to see God. That is why God made mankind, so that we could see him. Now, I'll try to connect that with the you know, shorter catechism question number one next week, uh, Lord willing, but uh, our goal is to see God. And uh, we are, therefore, have a purpose and an aim in our life from our creation. Well, that in itself ties, I think, well with the, the question of evangelism because there is so much uh, of a sense of aimlessness and purposelessness in life. And maybe we create our own purpose by finding you know, the own gr our group that we can re relate to. Uh, maybe it's only a virtual group that we relate to. There are various ways people try to create a purpose but the beatific vision points to the reason why God makes us. And that's uh, closely connected with the idea of uh, pilgrimage. It may not be a, a close connection at the beginning, but um, Augustine especially explained the beatific vision in terms of uh, the image of a pilgrimage. And the point is that as we go along the way in the Christian life, we are walking uh, by faith and not by sight because we have not yet attained to the vision of God. We have the revelation of God in the scriptures. We have the means of grace that he has appointed to us. And they are, they are 
more than sufficient for our needs, but it's not, the problem is not with them, but with us. We're not yet prepared fully to see God. And so the Christian life is a pilgrimage uh, walking along that way. You can think of Hebrews 11 as one uh, way in which uh, that image of a pilgrimage comes up. Uh, Abraham was a pilgrim who was seeking uh, a better uh, country. And the goal then in walking along the way was to prepare to see God, but the ultimate arrival was in the homeland, in the fatherland, which is actually the word which is used in Hebrews 11. And there we arrive and see God. Now, this uh, idea is actually captured very well for us in one of our metrical psalms, Psalm 84b, advancing still from strength to strength, they go where other pilgrims trod, till each design comes at length and stands before the face of God. So that's exactly the traditional image, obviously that, you know, we have the songs of ascent with, again, the, the pilgrim, pilgrimage uh, brought out, but that's exactly the imagery that Augustine tend to put forward. It's, it's beautiful because it says that as we go along the way, we advance from strength to strength. And that's the next part of this compelling metaphor I want to talk about. But there's a, a goal in the end, and it's a, it's a wonderful goal. It's not to reach the physical Zion, but it's to stand before the face of God, to see God. <coughs> what an answer to purposelessness and aimlessness in life. What a goal that God puts before us. Okay, and by the way, for full disclosure, the metrical version fits a lot better uh, with what I'm saying than most English translations. Uh, if you look at some English translations, you see a reference to the vision of God. Uh, the metrical version works really well for this uh, pilgrimage, and I think it's based in the text, but it's not. It's a, maybe a little bit looser uh, with the, the text than, than uh, what you might expect. So... What I want to do then is talk about that advancing from strength to strength. But let me pause just a second and say, um, whenever you hear people talking about the Christian life as pilgrimage, uh, one thing you might worry about is that this is escapism. Okay, that is, we are ignoring the world we're living in. We're just a passing through, or whatever it is that says. And you know, we don't have to worry about the world around us. We don't have to con be concerned with that. And that's, a, I think, a question that you could ask about the beatific vision. Does it mean then that we disregard the world we live in if our goal is to see God? So I want to come back to that, but let me just give you one historical example that disproves that those things go together. Samuel Rutherford, who's uh, probably popularly famous for his letters, wrote again and again of his desire to see, especially to see Christ. He would say things like, if I went to heaven and Christ weren't there, it would be hell. Okay, so that's Samuel Rutherford. He, he exaggerates uh, things very well. So if Christ were in hell, then it would be heaven. So uh, Samuel Rutherford wrote very powerfully about his desire to see God. But Samuel Rutherford did not neglect the kingdom of God as it should be uh, furthered in the earth. Samuel Rutherford worked for the Reformation of the Church in Scotland and uh, was a member of the Westminster Assembly and seeking to reform the church in England also. So if anyone was not, uh, you know, if you could find any example of someone who really was concerned about the progress of the gospel in this world and the good of this world under uh, even a Christian government, 
there would be someone who is also very focused on the beatific vision. So that is a question that someone could ask about this. The pilgrim metaphor does not imply uh, neglecting the world around us. But then how is it that we advance from strength to strength? And this is the part, I think, the most compelling part for me and the reason why I really want to study the beatific vision uh, together is that the scriptures teach that we are prepared to see God by the work of the Holy Spirit. So how does God prepare us to see himself? The, he does it by showing himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. God, in short, prepares us for the beatific vision which would overwhelm us which would be too much for us uh, as we are now by transforming us, by enabling us to look on the face of Christ. And uh, here the, the reference uh, is in is 2 Corinthians 3.18, which I think is on your sheet. Would someone read that? I did print that on there, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So this passage in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is referring back actually to the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and he's using uh, the experience of Moses who, who had to veil his face after seeing God because the Israelites couldn't, couldn't take that glory. But he's saying... In the New Covenant, we especially enjoy uh, seeing God in a mirror. And that, well, we'll return to this passage a little willing later, but that has to do with the means that, that God uses, especially his word. But the Spirit takes that looking, which is looking on Christ, and transforms us into the image of Christ from glory to glory. It's like from strength to strength in Psalm 84, from glory to glory. That's the work of the Spirit. It's a very beautiful thing because that means that the way we walk is consistent with the goal that we're heading toward. God is preparing us as we go along to see him by showing us his glory in Christ. So I put in here a long quote from Hermann Witsius, so Dutch uh, late 17th century uh, reformed writer. Uh, it's kind of long, but I decided it was worthwhile. I'll, I'll read this. The oftener a believer beholds the Lord Jesus in spirit, the more clearly he knows his perfections, of which his holiness is the ornament. The more clearly he knows them, the more ardently he loves them. The more ardently he loves them, the more like to them he desires to become. Moreover, the more ardently he loves God, he will both the more frequently, the more willingly and attentively behold him. And thus, often running around that circle of beholding and loving, forever returning into itself, he gains by every act a new feature of this most glorious image. It's really a beautiful statement of the, the cycle of beholding God's glory in Christ, being transformed into his image, and therefore loving him more, and wanting to see him more, and being prepared more and more to uh, be at the end uh, Change the glorious image of Christ. That's why I say it's a compelling metaphor. It's something that touches not just on the end times and something that will happen at the uh, last day, but the way we live our Christian life. And it's a way of thinking about our Christian life as day by day beholding the glory of God 
in the face of Christ by the work of the Spirit. And yes, it is a Trinitarian uh, teaching, uh, ultimately, in terms of the work of God to bring us to that. So do you think it's a compelling metaphor? What do you think about this pilgrimage stuff and going around in circles? Yes, Dave. So related, perhaps a little more toward the work of the Spirit, not so much the pilgrimage element, but in the upper room discourse, the disciples uh, want to distill what's going on, and they say, well, just show us. Mm-hmm. We want to see the Father. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear, you can, right. but you're not looking at him the right, right. way. And yeah. it, it's that powerful apprehension through the work of the Spirit to see Christ and in Christ to see the Father that is so desperately needed. Yeah. And it's, that's true. And I, uh, I spend the time, I plan to spend at least uh, one lesson just on that. Uh, and, but it is, you know, there are different ways to think about sanctification if you want to use this. But this is, a, I think, a very beautiful and compelling way to think of it because God is uh, preparing us for greater glory by showing us his son. He that has seen me has seen the Father. That's what he says when they ask him that. That's what Jesus says. Exactly. Good. Other thoughts? One danger of my teaching in this uh, position is that I can't see the clock. So, you know, you're going to be in real trouble. Uh, Looking at my so I'm going to go fairly quickly over uh, part, point C. This, is, this truth is connected to many other truths of the Christian faith. And I don't know if this is uh, just a point for theology geeks or not, but it is, uh, it is the case that the beatific vision is not just connected with eschatology, but it's connected with anthropology, who we are as people, how God made us. And I've already talked about that in terms of our goal. I already talked about uh, union with Christ. So there, there are lots of very basic truths of the Christian faith that are closely tied to this understanding of seeing God. So it's not just a class on eschatology. Um, but let me move on then uh, to say the, the fourth reason, which is that the beatific vision is God-centered. Okay. So that's a well-duh kind of observation, isn't it? Well, let me ask you a question. Um, when you talk to people... What do you get as an impression that people have as the main point of heaven? What do people look forward to? And I'm thinking here maybe people are not Reformed Presbyterians, you know, maybe they're not, not uh, others who study their Bible seriously, but what impression do you get people when they think of, of heaven? I'll see so-and-so. Okay. Yeah. Our dear departed relatives, good. Luxurious living in some mansion. Okay, mansions. Boring. Sounds good. Boring. Boring. Okay. And the suffering. Yeah. <laughs> those things aren't bad, right? Well, I'm not sure about the mansions bit, but uh, those things, <laughs> those things aren't aren't bad, right? But it's sort of like Psalm 17, that if you focus on those things, you're missing the main point, right? Heaven is about being satisfied. God. And if you're satisfied in anything less than that, then it's not heaven, right? Because you're missing the main point.
Oh, have fun. So the beatific vision orients us toward, and you know, I said heaven, but it's so really the new heavens and the new earth, however you want to think of it, the final state, that is, it's God-centered. And okay, so, you know, it's always easy to make fun of what other people would say, but, but do we ourselves sometimes think of God as a means to an end? Are our prayers sometimes so that God can help us do things? And then, as far as we're concerned, maybe he could go away. We would never say that. But, you know, that's God is, we need these things from God, and so we pray to God and ask those things of God. And that, that is perfectly fine. God calls us to pour out his, our petitions to him. But the beatific vision is God-centered in the sense that it always orients us toward knowing God and being satisfied in God. And Psalm 63, you know, my soul is a thirst for you. I long to see you. Is that the orientation that we have? What are we saved for? Are we saved so that we won't have to suffer? Yes. But we're also saved to a good end, which is to see God face to face, which is absolutely amazing. So the beatific vision is God-centered, and I really am going to get in trouble here. Any questions about that in the comments? Yes, sorry, didn't see. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. Look. Sorry, yes. So we need... It's a restoration of, of a right relationship with God. Right. What yeah. Intended for. Right, so uh, that's, that's exactly right. And we'll see that more next week, but it's, it's important to realize that the restoration goes beyond... The forgiveness of sins, which is absolutely wonderful, to a restoration of fellowship with God, which is glorious. Yeah. Good. By the way, one reason I wanted tables is that if we were going to talk about seeing God face to face, I wanted us to see each other's faces. <laughs> I'm sh shaming people who are sitting so far away. That's not nice. Yes, Dave. One of the things I appreciate about this doctrine is how it draws together the union and the value of the body yeah. and its importance, along with the supreme importance of the soul. Yeah. Is if, you were to, if you were to overlay doctrines which affect the physical body, doctrines which affect the soul, you would see the vision. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Good. Okay, so that's another compelling reason to study the doctrine. Yeah, that's right. Good. Okay, let me, uh, let me move then to the last... Uh, Point, and that is, well, the last of the five good reasons. Uh, that is, it le leads us to marvel at the goodness of God. Do you think anyone could think that they could attain to seeing God in their own strength? Well, probably there are some people who might do that. But really, think about what you know about God. Is it possible that you could think of attaining the beatific vision on your own? The common metaphor among uh, Reformed writers and others, I'm sure, is looking at the sun. We would be blinded by the glory of God if we sought to see him on our own. And unless God showed himself to us, we couldn't see him anyway. So I want to emphasize this up front because if you look at the history of the beatific vision, you see a lot of uh, asceticism. You see a lot of abuse of the body seeking to prepare people to see God. And it's so counter to the truth because it suggests that we can attain to the beatific vision in our own strength and by abusing our bodies. 
Whereas a beatific vision is a gift of God. So Psalm, there are lots of verses uh, that you could point to. And I, in fact, plan to keep harping on this point. But I put down Psalm 36, 9, which is often quoted. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And let me read what Jeremiah Burroughs says about this. They, speaking of the saints, come to see God by God, as a man comes to see the sun by the light of the sun. The sun sends his beams upon the world, and by those beams of light that the sun sends down upon our eyes, we come to see the sun itself. So in thy light shall we see light. It's only because God graciously gives us the beatific vision, that God enables us to see him, that we can see him at all. Okay, again, there's a lot more I could say, but uh, I'm running out of time. So let me, let me turn, and if you want to comment on, on that at the end, then uh, we can do that. Let me turn to one bad reason for studying the beatific vision. And in short, the bad reason that I have in mind is vain speculation. You have, you have no idea how much has been written on the beatific vision, how much uh, disputation there is. And I'm not saying it's bad, but there's definitely a temptation simply to study all the difficult questions about how we could possibly see God and to forget the main point. So this is a two-for-one quotation. This is Calvin. He's commenting on 1 Timothy 6.16, and he quotes Augustine. So there you go. There's two at once. Calvin says, let us also remember the wise caution Augustine gives us to be on our guard, our guard, lest while we are disputing about how God can be seen, we lose that peace and holiness with which no man can ever see him at all. And he's alluding to Hebrews 12, 14. So it is possible to pursue and even and to study the beatific vision without regard of the heart, which desires to see God without regard to the holiness of life, which God is working in us to prepare us to see him. The beatific vision, as Mark said in referring to 1 Corinthians 2, is, is ineffable. There's no way we can understand what it is. So vain speculation is not the way to go. You'll never get anywhere. But a heart that desires to see God's glory in it is the way to go. So let me conclude uh, just uh, encouraging you to think again about Psalm 27 and uh, think of the study of the beatific vision as really about the satisfaction in God, the hope that as for me, I will see God face to face. And I didn't bring this up before. David was on the run, right? Saul was trying to kill him. As one Puritan commentator said, David said to himself, well, I can't see the face of the king but I can see the face of God. What an encouragement and comfort it is to know that we have an end. God is calling us to a great uh, final end. And therefore, we can wake. We can wake in hope and live uh, the life uh, hoping in God. 1029, okay. <laughs> Comments or questions? Dan. In heaven there will be no time. In heaven there will be no time. That's good. <laughs> is that like we're anticipating heaven so I should keep going? Is that yeah, what you're, you're off the clock. Oh, yeah. Is there a long his 
history and church history of this uh, teaching being misapplied and misapplied? Yeah, um, so it's easy for Protestants to uh, sneer at what happened in the Roman Catholic Church, and the the actual record is is much more nuanced. But there, I was thinking of the mystics. Yeah, right. Where shall I begin? Um, you can give me a side note of another shot. One of the really sad things is was is that it tended to be reserved only for a special group of people. And so one observation that one writer made was that the, the penitential prayer books, which probably doesn't mean much to us, but the things that people would use to prepare themselves for the beatific vision were not available to the general public. They were only available to people who were specially dedicated to this. And it's just an amazing abuse of the scripture teaching, which is, we are the pilgrim people of God going together to see God. It's not one special class of people. So it's a very mixed record. Um, I don't want to say it's completely negative because there are a lot of good things that uh, people wrote and thought about it, but it's a very sad history. Yeah. <coughs> Other thoughts?